pledge allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, unless of your kidney, or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now, if you don't Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys would have it. Welcome to Movies at Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and returning today to the show is Philip Bergman, and he's here to talk about Saturday Night Fever. And um, it's been a while since you've been on the show. It's really good to have you back. Thank you. It's it's uh, wonderful to be back. Good. It's It's been, I think, what, before COVID, I think, right? Or right, maybe like around the beginning of COVID was the last time we had you on? No, we, um, we did... It was just before Thanksgiving, actually. Oh, because uh, I remember wow. we my time is all stuff about. <laughs> That's right. We cats. did that bonus yes. cats. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I know we agreed to never talk about it again, but we right. needed a timestamp there. Because <laughs> I, I do remember talking about COVID too. I just wasn't for some reason. I think it was more like late spring, early summer. My time is all mushed up, so I, I apologize. So yes, that was that was a fun one. I, that was a good one. Um, and anything new and exciting since then? Any any interesting life updates you'd like to share? Uh, the only really interesting thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously the Rock Hall news has been uh, what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the class of twenty twenty one announced, and been a lot of hubbub about that. But uh, personally, I think the only real interesting thing i guess i could mention is that i've gotten both of my jabs now double vaccinated right we're here today to talk about um this was this is a movie you proposed to me um and it's believe it or not it's one that i hadn't really thought too much about doing for for some reason um it's not a movie i automatically think of as like a rock and roll film but it but obviously it's, it's an iconic one and it's saturday night fever um and i think part of the reason too that it doesn't automatically because I because everybody knows who knows me how, how knows how into the Bee Gees I am, um, I think because I'm it's it's a movie that I've been like so close to that it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like I, I kind of look over it almost into like the wider sea of movies that for some hides reason hides in this plain sight. It hides in plain sight exactly. So um, I was excited to talk about this one. I do have a lot to say, um, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm always down for Bee Gees talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't I really don't think that this movie or the soundtrack really needs much of an introduction even now you know 44 years later um it's pretty it's still as iconic as it ever was I don't think the soundtrack I don't think is still the number one selling album of all time or and I don't think it's the number one selling soundtrack of all time anymore but it's certainly in like the top three or five um, I believe that yeah it was just, I, I mean, I wasn't around for its heyday. I wasn't quite here yet, but it was it was nope. an absolute phenomenon in every conceivable way. Um, and to this day, like it's still iconic and it's been through, um, both the soundtrack and the movie have been through its share roller coaster ride of, of acceptance and ridicule and love and hate. And I, I, I think that the just the cultural response to it is just as if not more interesting than the movie itself 
Nice. I <laughs> actually haven't paid a whole lot of attention to the, the cultural response of it. I didn't uh, do any research mm-hmm. uh, into that. So I didn't, I, I, I and know. you know, it's not something I thought about all that much, honestly, until I saw the Bee Gees documentary from this year, where it kind of, um, yes. yeah, it really kind of put you know, some different perspective on that for me. You know, and that's actually what made me think of uh, suggesting this movie in the first mm. place, too, is I got to watch, I watched it in bits and pieces. I couldn't mm-hmm. ever, couldn't work my schedule to watch the whole thing in one setting. Mm-hmm. But uh, watching that, I, I know for you, you said knowing the Bee Gees as well as you do, that it wasn't too revelatory. But for me, mm-hmm. it was actually pretty edifying. I love that. Like, I think, and, and I'm at a disadvantage in that sense, because I mean, I've been, they're kind of my Beatles. You know what I mean? I've been mm-hmm. such, such um, a mega fan since I was like six years old, you know, that, that, um, you know, a lot of people are list, list grooving to Abbey Road and I'm, you know, and I'm playing Odessa, you know, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's, a, it's, it, um, but it's the same kind of thing. Like I, I learned so much about them and I, you know, was, um, so, I mean, I, I kind of is at a disadvantage that so much of this I already knew just from because I was an unusual case, but um, I, it, it, I'm overjoyed that, that so many people are, are coming to them now from a different, it, it's, they're not just, you know, the dorky disco dudes with the chest hair right. medallions, you know, like there's, there's so much more to them than that. Do you have a history with them? Do you have, um, you know, what are, what, are, what are they to you, I guess? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because for the longest time, I could not stand them. It's not the disco <laughs> stuff, actually. I listen to a lot of oldies radio. Mm-hmm. And as you know, as you would know from the fact we did the Jersey Boys episode, I love a good falsetto singing. Mm-hmm. But there was always something to the tone color of the Gibbs voices that <laughs> just did not work for me. Mm-hmm. I, I especially hated I Started a Joke. I don't know, but I, I appreciate the harmonies, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but it was, it, which is funny because the next closest thing to their tone color, I would say would be the Everly brothers. And I love the Everly brothers, but for some reason, the, the Bee Gees just didn't quite sit well with me for the longest time. Um, but I did have a respect for their talent and I, I thought they, and I certainly didn't roll my eyes when I found out that they were in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's, it's, mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't they be? Right. So I, I think um, I think an appreciation for the Bee Gees first began actually when I heard the Scissors Sisters, I Don't Feel Like Dancing. Oh, no kidding. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's a banger. I, I love that song. And it's so good. Realize, when, and the Bee Gees influence is just so overt. Mm-hmm. that I guess hearing what the Bee Gees meant to them kind of made it possible for me to be more receptive. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we were saying uh, off record earlier, I had a career in radio briefly. And on the weekends, our station, which was normally a light rock station, would do retro music, 70s and 80s. And so that did involve a lot of the Bee Gees music from that era, which actually was still kind of hit and miss. Um, Some songs I liked, some songs I didn't. Also the fact that you're doing weekend overnights and dealing with the drunks kind Mm. of ruins things for you, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah. 
even to this day, I wouldn't say I'm a huge, huge fan, but the more I actually take time to sit with the music, the more it grows on me. I really mm-hmm. have an appreciation for it. Yeah, vocally, the Bee Gees are very much an acquired taste, and I do not hold that against anybody for not being able to... to um absorb that to be completely fair i'm not if if, had i not gotten into them when i did i'm not sure i would really be into them that much either to be honest with you like there's especially like you've you've got the berry squeal and you have the robin bleeding um you know that's very it's it can be tough even for me as like as a huge fan like there's some deep album cuts that they do that are just really like, what the hell are they doing? Like, why are you singing like that? Like they really, <laughs> I, I could make a, like a, I could make a playlist. I, I'm not going to, if, I mean, if people want me to, I will, but I could make a playlist of <laughs> uh, ridiculous Bee Gees vocals on, on songs that I think would like, you know, make some, you know, make some skin crawl. Get to one of them. <laughs> I think we're going to get to one of them too. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Well, we'll see. We'll All see. Right. But yeah, there's some really goofy stuff in their catalog, and and I, you know, um, and they were surprisingly like in the in their late '60s, early '70s era, they were surprisingly abstract and bizarre yep. avant-garde people, and that, I think Absolutely. that was your performers, and that was part of it. Like even just down to like the very head-scratching song titles, you know, you have things like "Cucumber Castle," and um, you know, just weird stuff like lemons never forget. They have a song called, um, (laughs) so just weird things like that. Like, um, and I think maybe that's part of why I also appreciate offbeat music, like things like like Captain Beefheart and Zappa, because I, that was sort of like the uh, bite-sized, you know, you know, kindergarten version of that sort of thing. But, um, that is big as it, you know, the the vocals are definitely a lot at times. (laughs) So I don't begrudge anybody that. Yeah. Um, but if but if you remove that and just um, think about them as songwriters, it makes sense that in the 80s and 90s, they became such prolific givers of songs. Um, yeah. You know, like just just songwriters, not performers, because um, as far as, you know, writing just epic melodies and and. Um, you know, beautiful hooks and stuff like that. They were right up there with the best of the best. It's tradition here. And I just want to throw this out there as well, too. We, we are focusing on the Bee Gees because when we think, when people think of Saturday Night Fever, that's immediately what they think of. They think of the strut. They think of staying alive. They think of um, how deep is your love, uh, John Travolta. I mean, that's just like what they think of automatically when they think of Saturday Night Fever. So that's, um, that's kind of why I'm focusing on the Bee Gees. But I also want to remind people too that the soundtrack is actually a lot more than just the, just the Bee Gees you know there's there's um, lots of other you know you got the Tramps you got Yvonne Elliman who was singing a Bee Gees song um, you know you got a fifth of Beethoven you, you've got there's a lot there the, the salsa sure. um, it's a pretty it's a pretty incredible varied soundtrack um, but the Bee Gees were, were so incredibly huge that it um, they're understandably it, it, what people think of it, yeah, it's kind of known as one of their albums, kind of like the same thing mm-hmm. with uh, Whitney Houston and the Bodyguard. Yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. Yeah, and that that, that kind of thing is very unusual. Um, so yeah, so as is, as a tradition, going back to this, um, as I like to do, let's do our top three favorite songs. And I told Philip before we recorded, I'm I kind of I'm gonna wing this because um, 
if I had thought about it too much before, I would probably overthink it. So I'm going <laughs> to, how I decided to do it is I'm going to kind of do one song from every era, like an early, oh, okay. early one, a mid middle era one, and then a late period one. Okay. So that'll nice. help me be more spontaneous. <laughs> sure. So I'll, I'll let you go first as you're the okay. guest. Okay. Well, number three is the aforementioned Levin, Lemons Never Forget. No kidding. Me. Wow. I, <laughs> I actually encountered that song watching a rerun of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. And they wow, played the music really? video for that. Yeah. Get it, out of it here. It was so weird. It was abstract. It's like, you know, I, I kind of like this. It's it's different. Wow. And I got to go find that. I never knew that they performed that ever anywhere. <laughs> well, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the performance. They played mm. the music video. Okay. Kind of thing. Yeah. Even so. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you know what, you know what that song's about? It, it's too abstract for me, but I just, I just love listening to it. it, it, it there's actually a story to it. It was, it, okay. it's kind of um, a bit of a takedown of the Beatles when they did the Apple studio, like that big store oh, thing. Of course. And, um, and that was kind of them being like, what are you guys doing? Like an apple is a fool, but apple lemons never fool, forget. Yeah. And, but it, it was obviously veiled. It. Yeah. It was obviously veiled in, in, um, you know, um, surrealism, but that's, mm -hmm. that was kind of their, their basis because uh, Brian Epstein was, was a bit involved in their early career as well. So they had yes. some connections there. So very, ins very inspired choice. I like that a lot. That's fantastic. Mine will not probably be quite that obscure um, <laughs> because unfortunately I hate to tell you this, but my, number three song that I'm taking from the beginning era is I started a joke. <laughs> okay. I um, mean, hey, yeah. What, what I, works for you. Right. And, and like I said, I understand being put off by the, by the vocals. It's very goaty, um, very throaty. Um, but I don't know. I just find his delivery quite passionate. And I think in the song, like the lyrics of the song are, are very, are, are kind of peculiar. I always found them very evocative, even though they don't necessarily make sense. I think there's something there that's very melancholic and very, um, you know, very thought-provoking. And, and it um, is a relatable song at times too. I think yeah. we all feel that way where the only way you can make other people happy is to be miserable yourself. And right. when you're happy, yet other people are so sad. So it, it's a relatable song, definitely. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I just think it's, um, and I, just the melody of the song, you know, I've heard it in other contexts too, like different covers and stuff like that. And I think it just always, um, I just think it's a very beautiful, beautiful piece of pop music. So it is a good arrangement. I mm -hmm. like the arrangement for it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's, that's my first one. So I'll let you do your number two. Okay. I think number two is going to be, you should be dancing. Oh, that was one of those songs I really yeah. got into during my radio career. And I love to turn up in the studio whenever it came on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's a, it's a great. That is a very difficult song to sit still when you're here. Even if you're not a dancer, I think it's very hard. Like you'd have to kind of be made of stone to at least not move some part of your body when you're hearing that song. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's just tapping your foot, like I, I, it's just it's so infectious. And again, it's such a well, amazingly produced song. Like you can hear. Like all the it percussion is. just just shimmers. It's it's really beautiful. Um, my yeah, my number two is um, 
I'm probably going to go with How Can You Mend a Broken Heart from the middle period. Okay. Um, okay. You can call that middle period. I was going to say anything pre jive talking, I would call early period. But if you want to call that, oh, okay. How can you, but if How Can You Mend a it's it's your list. It's your list. Okay. <laughs> well, that that was like seventy two ish. Because I guess yeah. I was thinking like like pre breakup as one era, because they oh, had okay. that like sixty nine seventy hiatus, and then the middle was kind of like the pre Saturday for me anyway. Because then I kind of I kind of jumped ship a little bit in the early eighties, because they they put out an album in eighty one, and that was the last album they put out for a number of years, and right. that's kind of okay. where I jumped ship. That makes that makes so. sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I just think I mean it. It kind of is like the textbook example of early '70s AM radio. <laughs> sure. But um. Yeah, definitely has that singer songwriter thing going for it. Yeah, and I just think the harmonies in that one are some of the some of the best, most like pristine that they've ever done. Um, my, by the way, I'm just letting you know all mine are the slow jams. <laughs> as good oh, as they okay. did the dancing, I think I'll, I, I I just am more drawn to the to the to the ballads. I think they I think Bee Gees ballads are. Or it doesn't get much better than that, um, and yeah, it's a, it's a simple sentiment done beautifully, and um, Al Green's cover is amazing. Mm, um, yes, it is. Yeah, great melody, and that that classic Barry Gibb hey, thing that he does, <laughs> and leading into the chorus is just like oh, it's it's great. <laughs> okay. And number one. Okay. Well, mine is actually a little bit of a of a literature. Uh, oh. reference if you don't mind yeah absolutely uh, so when you when you talk about the the kind of literature where things go wrong for the protagonist there's basically three uh, classic genres of it there's the genre where the gods hate you and you really don't know why and that's that's generally called the greek tragedy right mm. and then you have the shakespearean where you hate yourself, you cause your own undoing, but you don't fully, you don't know why. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the Shakespearean tragedy. And the third kind is when the morning cries and you don't know why. That's the Bee Gees tragedy. <laughs> Very ac excellent lead in. That was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes, that was good. I don't know if I can top that at all in any capacity the rest of the day, but. <laughs> but I, I love, I love tragedy. First time I heard that, you know, I, I thought, are they taking like, it sounds like there was a classical influence to it almost with the string arrangement and the, the tonality of it. Mm -hmm. I, I thought like it was like an adaptation of some classical piece at first. I can kind of hear that. Yeah. Like on, on the, yeah. That goes to kind of, so that really like, oh, it that displays just... how, how, you know, their, their songwriting chops, their, their melodicism. Yes. <laughs> To use a big word, yeah, great choice. But yes, tra tragedy, dread tragedy. Oh, I love that song. Yeah, that is love, love, love. That's fantastic. Not, not even a, con not even a contest. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. My, my number one, like I said, we can keep it with the slow jams, and transitioning into Saturday Night Fever. I got to go with "How Deep Is Your Love." I just think it's sure. absolutely, just a stunningly beautiful song. Um, it is. I mean, it just the perfect marriage of, of words and melody, living in a world of fools, you know, breaking it, but they also let us be like, just let us live our lives. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's gorgeous. And it, it does not kind of held back by any of that falsetto craziness. I, that's one of the songs I, that I, I've noticed that people who are, are not really big into the Bee Gees, that's the one song that most of them are kind of, oh yeah, that, that's a total slapper. That's, 
a really really well I think I would and I would song. love that song a lot more if I hadn't encountered it so frequently in my overnight mm. radio days that makes as sense, much as yeah. I as much as I loved my job in radio as much as I loved working there mm-hmm. just uh this sometimes like again because you're trying you're being held together by Mountain Dew and thinking mm. and dealing with you know people who would blow up a breathalyzer if there was a match at the end of it yeah it's triggering i'm sure kind of ruins the song sometimes yeah i can understand that but yes everything you said about it is absolutely true yeah you know i can i'm surprised that one people don't dance to that one at weddings more often yeah i have a friend that actually was her wedding song was that one there you go yeah and um yep and um interestingly also that one um for similar reasons that was sort of like a um this was a late a late bloomer song for me it, I, it was one that didn't interest me much when I was younger just because it was a really overplayed and um I was more into like the more rocky and fat up-tempo stuff and it wasn't until I got older that I really appreciated what the song was doing and just how well crafted it was and it yeah mm-hmm. even like the last five years or so that one's really kind of come to be like oh okay I get it now <laughs> absolutely yeah so yeah, very, very good list. Yeah, so getting in, getting into Saturday Night Fever, like I said, this movie doesn't need a lot of introduction. It's it's legendary. Um, it's it's iconic. It will. It's a movie that people still talk about. And also, I'm going to start off by saying I think it's maybe one of the more most misunderstood movies in modern cinema, um, for the reason that I think people often go into this movie expecting something expecting one thing and realizing very quickly that this movie is something else entirely um so that's my little lead-in but um again i want to throw to you first um do you have any background with this movie like what was when was the first time you saw it (laughs) you know it's funny you mentioned that i actually owned this movie for a long time before i ever actually watched it Wow. Uh, yeah. So what happened was a uh, girl I was dating, her father is a big BG fan and loves mm-hmm. Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. So uh, for Christmas one year, I actually went out and got him uh, a DVD copy of it. So come Christmas morning, turns out his wife had the exact same thought. And we both got him Saturday night. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so what ended up happening is uh, he got my the copy I bought and they decided to give me the copy that she had bought. Mm-hmm. So I had this <laughs> movie for a long time and I just never quite got around to watching it and finally I decided to pull it out and, and watch it probably like oh it's this is one of those movies i probably should see at some point exactly (laughs) yeah exactly so what what was your reaction to it because i i i'm so because the reason i ask is i've i've heard from more than one person and i think my my favorite kind of description of this is, is somebody once told me that they went into this movie expecting rocky and what they got was more like taxi driver was it was so like the experience was a lot more dark was a lot darker and more, um, a little bit more coarse than what they were expecting. Sure. And because I mean, it's very, it's legacy and the way it's packaged and marketed is very much like, you know, glossy, campy, 
you know, Saturday Night Fever, let's go party, but it's Glee in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and it's really not that at all. No. <laughs> it's a pretty harsh movie. It is. Yeah. You know, I almost have an anthropological fascination about this movie when I mm. having watched it because culturally this is such a different movie it's hard for me to relate to any mm. of it so much so I just kind of watch it in kind of just absorbing like the, you know the culture of the 70s uh, yeah. New York City I've never been to New York City the closest I've been to New York is Wilkes-Barre Pennsylvania mm. um, the you know the ethnic lines drawn well I come from a town so small where the only minorities you had were migrant workers. Mm. Um, it's so, I mean, even, you know, club culture, I've never been to a club, you know, the whole dancing thing, like so much of this, even just having friends to hang out with on a Saturday night was kind of a foreign <laughs> concept to me. So whether they're cool or not, like they, I, some of the people he chooses to hang out in this movie are, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it must have been like a very like foreign experience. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I can understand that too. Yeah, because I mean, this it's a pretty extreme representation of of inner city life in New York City for any time period, you know, and it really doesn't yeah. shy away from showing all its warts i mean you've got i mean just the language alone in this movie is is really yeah, shocking that was, that was the first that was the first thing that really shocked you into it's like mm -hmm. okay well this is the ride we're on today yep yep absolutely I, and i mean I, it was a little more accepted i think in the 70s but i mean like all kinds yeah. of homophobic slurs and racial slurs and you know tons of f-bombs and the, the the soundtrack has overshadowed the actual movie right i would say by, by a mile oh absolutely absolutely and it's such a glossy soundtrack i guess a little bit of background on the movie is it was it was based on a short story um written by music writer nick Cohn. it was called tribal rights of the new saturday night and it was based in a new york magazine um I think it's 76. And um, so it was kind of picked up to, as a potential movie option. Um, and the Bee Gees actually hopped on board to, to um, write the soundtrack early. They liked the short story a lot. Um, and um, it kind of came together that way. John Travolta just, you know, was fresh off of Welcome Back, Cotter. Um, if this was before Greece, this was kind of between Cotter and yes. Greece. You know, I even had to check to make sure none of the sweat hogs were one of the, were the friends in the car there. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, and you know, I mean, he, he's pretty, pretty great. He was nominated for an Oscar for this movie, and um, yeah, and, and interestingly, kind of, I had mentioned Rocky before. Um, it, initially, they hired John. Um, I, I think, hopefully, I'm saying this name right. John G. Avildsen, who directed Rocky. I know he's not much of a name these days, but he he was the director of Rocky. He was originally hired to do the movie. But then they fired him. I'm not entirely sure why that was the case. I don't know if maybe he just didn't get along with John Travolta or maybe he was trying to move the movie in a different direction. Um, but yeah, it, it, but that for whatever reason, that didn't work out. And so John Badham ended up being the person who directed a lot of John's involved in this movie. 
So yeah, that's just a little, you know, a little background about the, the production okay. of this movie. So as we know, John Travolta is Tony Manero. He's an Italian American who lives in Brooklyn. Um, he's kind of a, he's, he's an interesting character. He, he's, every time I watch this movie, and I don't know if you feel the same about his character, I'm a little baffled and confused by his character simply because I mean, there's so much going on. You can tell that he's very, that he's a bit lost. He's a bit unsure of the direction in his life. He wants, he has big ambitions. He's very e- e- kind of egotistical, especially in terms of like his, his looks and his um, presentation. But at the same time, it's almost like there's, there's this, this part of him that that's um, doesn't quite know how to reach those ambitions, doesn't quite know you know, how to, how to channel his energies. Cause he, he, you know, spends his evenings going out. I don't know how he gets the money to go out all the time. Um, <laughs> he hangs out with these, these, honestly, these loser friends and makes this, he makes a lot of really strange, strange choices throughout the movie. You know, <laughs> like, like we, we feel for him. Like I feel for him as a character. I think he's, you know, I, I empathize with him and I think he's well-drawn, but there's also moments in the movie is particularly one, you know, uh, important moment that we'll get to towards the end of the movie where it, I, it kind of leaves me scratch my head like hmm you know you have so much ambition and and you know a, a fair amount of talent why are you it feels sometimes like you're squandering it you know and it, I don't know it leaves me with that impression you know I didn't see him as ambitious I think he ambitious to a degree like he wants to make something of himself but he doesn't really have like if you asked you know, what does he want to do? What, what, are, what, are his, what are his career ambitions? He would have absolutely no answer for you. I think he wants to dance. Just, he just wants to be the, like, the biggest yeah. dancer in the world. That's his, that's his, I think where I, the ambition part kind of came in. Cause I mean, especially Lots like he wins at dance. Is, definitely. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I guess, I guess maybe the ambition and drive, like he doesn't seem driven like he wants all the things, but he doesn't really do what he has to do to get there. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. know. Maybe, maybe that's not accurate, but that's kind of how I, I feel it. And he kind of lets, he, and he feels very directionless, maybe is the way I'm looking at it. Um, I, I think that's a good word to, mm-hmm. to describe it. I, I think a lot of it, and I think this is true with a lot of the characters where it's kind of that, post heights high school scene but you don't really feel like an adult yet Mm -hmm. yeah and i i think that's what i mean i it's almost like a second coming of age type of Mm -hmm. film quarter life crisis (laughs) Uh, in a sense (laughs) yeah sort of yeah it's, it's kind of like getting out of the gate for the first time and now you don't know where to go yeah you're trying to process how to handle all the freedom that you now have in a way. And I, I think that shows up quite a bit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do. With, with the, especially with the one character. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to, we'll get into that. Yeah. So he's, so he's kind of an interest. He's a li- little bit of a peculiar character in that sense. Like I, I you feel for but him, but I, I don't say, exactly know what goes on in his head. <laughs> but at the same time too, he, I, I don't know if I quite say he has a lot of common sense, but he is, Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot more grounded than maybe some would would give him credit for. Sure, sure, and and I think a lot of it too. A lot of the directionlessness that I, I that he's he's kind of dealing with. It, he seems to be 
being pulled in a lot of different directions. Like you have his, his group of friends that he's always trying to impress. You have his, um, you know, you have um, Stephanie, who's he's trying to impress, who's his new dancing partner. Um, you know, he, there's Annette there who he kind of has a thing for and is, that's his hot pursuit. And then he has his brother who's, you know, who's a priest or, you know, or at least for part of the movie, uh -huh. he's a priest and lives a very different lifestyle. And he wants to impress him. And then he also has, a, has his family who he's influenced by and they're a very kind of rough and tumble family. Um, you know, they're all slugging each other at the dinner table. Um, so he's got like all these different opposing and influences boss. and his boss, exactly, yeah. And he doesn't really know, he, and he, he wants to impress all of them, but they're all such opposing forces that he doesn't quite know how to balance everything. And, and I think he just kind of, as the movie progresses, I think it kind of comes to a head a little bit. I know that's yeah. just how, that's just my interpretation of it. Um, but I, I didn't honestly didn't want, didn't see him as wanting to impress his brother so much as he just didn't mm -hmm. want to be compared to his brother. I think that's, that's fair. How I, how I saw the mm -hmm. relationship with the brother. I think it, it may be not impressed. I think that he, maybe he, I, I think he was afraid to disappoint him because he, he very clearly respected him and had, had affection for his brother while he didn't necessarily yeah. understand his lifestyle. Um, I think he very much, cause there's a real, there's a real like, kind of like, you can definitely see like the tenderness between the two of them. Um, and I think it was more of a fear of disappointment. And he kind of knew that you know, because he brought him to the club and stuff like that. He kind of knew like, well, I think you're a little uncomfortable right now, you know, and he was, so he's kind of walking a bit of a tightrope there. So. Yeah. And at the same time too, he's also the person who's like most there for his brother as oh, well. Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that, that comes through clear as day. Right. Right. Cause you know, I mean, and he, he was having just so you, everybody knows as normal i do spoilers on here <laughs> but his brother was having a crisis of faith <clears throat> and um he really kind of helped him sort that out you know so obviously he had a lot of compassion in that regard too and um maybe he kind of saw his own sort of uncertainty in himself and what his brother was going through too so maybe he could connect on that level in some in some ways i I don't know if I did see that. Um, I, obviously, you've seen it a lot more times than I have, mm -hmm. so maybe that's part of it. I, but I think especially like to the next day where he meets up with his friend Gus while he's mm -hmm. carrying groceries and he is in just such a better mood mm -hmm. because he feels like... I, I got the impression he felt like a great weight has been lifted off his mm -hmm. shoulders that he's being held to the same standard the same metric by his parents mm. as as frank was held i could so, see that yeah that, that makes sense that's that's where i got that's, that's kind of how i saw it mm -hmm. tony's relationship with his parents was a lot more contentious than frank's ever was but, yes um, yeah but which makes sense just because of you know their respective choices <laughs> that they <laughs> that they made or, or you know but yeah talking kind of going back to like his friends group they were yes an interesting the friends motley crew <laughs> <laughs> there a rough pretty pretty uh pretty rough gang of people he had like bobby and gus and all those people um yeah yeah it's it's yeah i was thinking about the dynamic with the friends too it's i mean you've got double j who mm -hmm. kind of has to be reined in by all the others he's the hothead yeah i mean even even at the point where he's just playing with a lighter all the time like he wants 
He wants destruction. Yeah. He wants to burn it down. He doesn't mm-hmm. care what it is. He just wants right. to burn it down. Yeah. Uh, you got Bobby, who I swear wouldn't even be in the group of friends if he didn't have a car. I, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Actually, I mean, you yeah. look at how the others treat Bobby. It's like he's only around because he's got the wheels. Yeah. That's like that's the only reason they're friends with him. It's and it kind of shows too because he is a he's a weaker willed character mm-hmm. for sure to a large degree it's oh it it almost comes off as i don't know i don't want to quite say caricature but i i can't think of another way to, to describe mm-hmm. how wishy-washy bobby can be at times mm-hmm. he was he was maybe the most interesting of the characters for me because i mean as we all know he he kind of he meets his fate at the end of the movie or not at yep. the end, but towards the end of the movie with the, with the bridge right. scene. Um, and he, yeah, he was very wishy-washy. You could, you could, you could tell that he could tell that he was kind of only being used for his wheels, like you said, or, or but kind of, he was yeah. kind of being taken advantage of. And I think that he felt that to a degree, but he was, he didn't quite have the, uh, the willpower or, or the, you know, or, or the being, gonads being to used, stand up for himself. <laughs> being used for your wheels is better than not being around anybody at all, kind of thing. Right. It, like it's at like least you're being accepted rela- on a bad some relationship level. worse than no relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Only, only with friends this time. Right. And and I could see it since in, which is it's in, an interesting controversy when towards the end of the movie, when he does <clears throat> when he does fall off the bridge, it's it's what it feels like one of those accidentally on purpose kind of situations. You know, because he was clearly like there was some emotional instability that was very clear there, even though it was, you know, it didn't necessarily find his character. But I, I don't know. I it, like it was it, it definitely was an accident. But there's a part of me that was also like, hmm. How much of an accident was it really? You, you know? know, I kind of. <laughs> yeah, because I was watching that a little closely and you kind of the way it was staged almost choreographed that he would have a bad spin turning around and he'd lose his balance mm-hmm. then so like maybe it was a subconscious thing but you know he, he couldn't have recognized it and nobody really could have recognized it as a conscious decision right either. right because it, it i mean it you know essentially He's clearly was losing his but... mind oh yeah the movie mm-hmm Hundred percent, and I and that seemed that whole situation, regardless of you know intentions or otherwise, that was really like a downward spiral for all of them, because that's when we start getting into you know, <laughs> the, you know, just things really fall apart, especially for for Tony. You know, he kind of just to to me, that's really the straw that breaks the camel's back, and then he you know he kind well, of and, um, and you know going back to using Bobby for his car, you, you he walks away from it. He doesn't get back in the car with his friends either. It's like you can't. Right to be in the car anymore right absolutely yeah that was definitely a turning point um so there's uh, when i when i think about the plot of this movie there's definitely an elephant in the room um that involves the multiple occurrences of sexual assault in the movie which is pretty Mm. um pretty brazenly displayed yet there's 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 like a there's like a gang scene and then there's a scene there's the scene with tony um, which maybe is the most baffling, puzzling decision that he makes. Um, 
especially because we're, we're you know it, just talking from a personal experience from watching this movie that you know i'm with him for the whole ride you know i, I you know regardless of 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 you know, kind of what he's dealing with. That's the one point in the movie that, that kind of pivots my, my empathy because it's, it's very abrupt and it's very intense. Um, and it's, and it's at least that's how I saw it. And, and um, I mean, I, I like your use of abrupt because I, mm-hmm. I found it pretty inexplicable either. It's like, okay, yeah. the whole thing at the club just happened. And now this is why. Right. Yep, I, I couldn't understand his character's motivation for that, mm-hmm. to be honest. But yeah, like I said, this is also a very different cultural thing for me to look at too. So right, same thing with at the very end of the movie when he he goes to visit Stephanie, and she just lets him in his house. I'm like, dude, just you know, sexually assaulted <laughs> you, and sure, right. come on in. It's like, you know, like, that's got to be that's got to be a '70s thing because I I can really see no other reason for that kind of response (laughs) um yeah it's it's like well they they have to be friends at the end so this is what's going to happen like oh right yeah right and i mean maybe that was their attempt at some kind of redemption arc for him um but i don't think it goes quite far enough for it to really be a successful one Mm. (laughs) um and it's just it's it's really upsetting just because he is a character that I'm, that I'm on board with and empathizing with. And so that makes it really hard. That sort of was, that's a moment where I'm like, it really pulls me out of like, okay, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this anymore. It kind of pulls the rug out from underneath me a little bit. Um, You know, honestly, I, you know, even, even Tony, who you're supposed to feel for the most, was a character that I just, I didn't think I could all that much. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, for a lot of the reasons we just talked about, for sure. But at the same time, you look at the choices he, the choices he does make when he has the choice, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, same thing. Like, okay, you're losing me here. You know, we haven't gotten to Annette yet, but just to preface that, the whole situation with Annette is just, mm. yeah. And then Annette, she really, even even more so than, I mean, not. I don't want to play the comparison game, but Annette also, she got really, it's pretty crazy. I mean, like, so, so, so there's Joey who kind of is hooking up with Annette and then um, basically long story short, she gets assaulted at, by a gang, by the group of friends. Um, and it's, it's very uncomfortable to watch. And um, yeah, I mean, she, it, it, and that's an interesting thing too, because for a lot of the movie, she's, she's, she's one of the more, if not the most promiscuous of the characters, um is she i i I got the impression that she was she had her sights clearly on tony and only on tony that was the impression i got she she definitely did have her eyes on tony but i also got the impression too that she was a little bit more like she was kind of um she very much leaned into the um aftermath of the free love movement of the 60s like all right you know this (laughs) like i you know i i I think that she was very um i think she was just very sexually liberated and not in a way that was you know not in a way that was you know judgmental or or or, or you know or, or anything like that but more of just like this is kind of who she is she's her own woman but then that but then that situation happened and um okay and and it, it really for her was kind of a, a, a turning point 
At least that's kind of how I saw it. I guess that kind of got lost on me because she throws herself at Tony so early and so often that I that mm-hmm. I missed that. It, like yeah. Even like she even uses his, his friends to try to trick him into mm-hmm. trick Tony into having sex with her in the car. You know. Right, and and interesting, and I think part of that too is because. Um, because she was so kind of um, free <laughs> that Tony was a little bit of a yeah. lost conquest for her. And maybe she was, she kind of was a woman who was used to getting what she, what she wanted in that sense. And so I think Tony's constant kind of like resistance made her all the more, you know, determined, determined. Thank you. Yeah. To, to kind of, you know, make that ultimate conquest. And unfortunately it didn't, uh, things kind of took a turn South for her, but um, at least that, that's kind of how I see it. Um, because they didn't okay, really have a lot of chemistry. Back, <laughs> no, but I also think back to that scene in, in the, in the bar mm-hmm. where he's like, because we went out once and you talked about your married sisters one after the other kind of just, you know, got the impression that she was just looking to be married and that her eyes were again, like I said, on, on Tony, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I guess, but again, I, I mean, that's why I saw what I saw, but yeah, I, no, she was definitely infatuated. Hearing, hearing for what you sure. say, it definitely mm-hmm. puts a good a good new spin on it for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, she she definitely there was certainly an infatuation there. I just think I, I find her to be a, a little bit more, um, just a little more free, free spirited, I guess. Um, I definitely, I find her actually a little more interesting than the Stephanie character, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't dislike her as a character, and I and I certainly feel for her at the end of the movie. Like my heart just broke for her um, sure. with that situation. Sure. But but I would I would say that the the first maybe the first half of the movie it doesn't really portray her in that great of a light. Like she kind of comes off as a little bit um, a standoffish. Um, you know, she's always kind of name dropping all the famous people that she worked with, and um, yeah, she uh, she. I was going to say, she come, kind of comes off as like a pretentious. Yeah, um, that's a good word for like, it. Like you said, name dropping, mm-hmm. uh, trying to trying to climb. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but Tony yeah, wasn't was... much of an opportunity for her to climb. That's for sure. <laughs> well, and you could tell he didn't he didn't like that about her entirely either, especially that the scene in the cafe. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just talking with his mouth full and just <laughs> like, you know what? This is what I am. And I mean, even kind of comes to this, you, you can even notice how, like, I, again, I don't stand off as her pretentious. She's, just, like, she's not even asking Tony about himself at all either. Yeah, that's true. But, but again, at this, but then again, by the same token, at this point, she's, really just only interested in dancing anyway so why yeah. get to know him all that well either but That's at the true. same time she goes on so much about herself it's like <laughs> yeah i mean she's i mean she's a marvelous dancer and and i wonder part this is something I, i'd like to get your opinion on um sure so john travolta kind of worked his tail off for the dancing in this movie um, to the, to the point, like there was a, li- there's a funny little anecdote about how, when they were going to film the, the big scene in the club, uh, the, you should be dancing scene. Originally they were just mm. going to do, they were just going to do like a, a, a close-up shot of his head while he was dancing. And he kind of, he really like fought back saying, I did not work my tail off for however many months 
for you to just film my face. He's like, no, you're going to show my dance moves. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good for him. Cause yeah. man, I, I, I wanted to hit the floor with him at that point, man. That was, yeah. I love that. That whole solo there basically. Yeah. And, and then, and awesome. actually you kind of answered my question because I was going to say, do you, um, I think that, that John Travolta is a, a, a um, is a very is so charismatic and energetic. I don't know necessarily that technically he's that fantastic of a dancer, but I think that he really that energy and that um, the, just the the the, um, the charm, everything just sells. He's super fun to watch. But do you think that maybe like his victory in that in that um, in that in that one competition they had where they lost to the Puerto Rican couple? Do you think that had something to do with Stephanie kind of like upping his game a little bit? Cause I know right. then he has a little bit of a conniption about like, well, it was, it's racism, you know? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. If okay. So I, are, are we talking about him dancing solo and you should be dancing? Or are we talking about the competition? Sorry. Um, just just solo, solo too. And then compared to like okay. his dancing skills with Stephanie, I guess. Okay. Um, I mean, when I saw the "You Should Be Dancing," I thought it was just the, the music moving him. Mm -hmm. um, as far as Stephanie upping his game, I kind of almost thought, to to a degree, yes, because they were doing some moves that you know he didn't think to incorporate mm -hmm. into their routine. But at the same time, too, when I saw the competition dancing, I thought it was very muted. To a degree, especially, mm, yeah. I mean, and the pinnacle of that it's supposed to be the you know the romantic climax when they're kissing during the song, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you shouldn't be winning a competition if you're <laughs> holding for that long and then just you know kissing your partner like that. Right. Too. It's more it's posing, not dancing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it, but then again, I also used to watch a lot of um, figure skating, and mm. you you got the technical merits and you've got the artistic merits so mm -hmm. when it comes to you know the technical versus the artistic that would definitely be considered more of an artistic um sequence yeah I guess you could say. that's very very that's well said that's a good way of looking at it the, yeah the graceful uh and it's it's an interesting choice too because when you think you know a, a graceful kind of thing like that you, you would think wouldn't necessarily win a competition they want the the showmanship yeah that's true that's a good point i had i hadn't quite thought of it that way but that that's a good point because um you know like i said he he gets upset he he thinks that they're not deserving and that it was you know driven by you know politics or racism or what have you and that i think it was just hometown favoritism myself but that's yeah how yeah myopic my vision can be sometimes that, yeah. i mean definitely racism was there right but at the same time you know, nobody was going to win, but Tony. Yeah. I mean, yeah. e even if everybody in that club was white or Italian, right. nobody was going to win, but Tony. Right. Probably regardless of who his partner was, because he was so popular, you know, right. on the dance floor, even, you know, even if it wasn't his best performance, he probably had it in the bag from the get go. <laughs> just, just for showing up. Right, exactly. Yeah. And Stephanie was just kind of like an added bonus. <laughs> like you needed a partner. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. A yeah. formality. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I just was interested in, in, in your in your thoughts on that. Cause um because yeah, that 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 you should be dancing sequences, I think is one of the most invigorating, um, exhilarating 
you know, musical moments of, of modern movies. Um, yes. And um, it, it's amazing. It's just, it, it's kind of interesting to watch, um, you know, like you said, the artistic side versus the technical side. Well, it may not be like technically like knock your socks off, but it's artistically, it's like, it couldn't be better in my True. opinion. Although yeah. I will say the, the Puerto Rican dance, um, I thought there was a, a lot of great artistry that too, especially mm -hmm in the, the facial expressions of the woman dancer, I think that would yeah. add, add a lot of artistic credibility that she doesn't lose her smile and, and the passion and vigor in her face doesn't mm -hmm. flinch for a moment, even when she's pulling off all these technical moves. So, I mean, yeah. I actually have to agree with Tony, the Puerto Ricans won. Yeah, I kind of, I, I'm with you there. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but and you, you could tell yeah. it too, because he had the same look in his eyes that he had when he first saw Stephanie dancing mm -hmm. to a song that he thought was undanceable. Yeah. And he sees Stephanie doing it and the way his eyes light up, that's the same look he had when he saw the Puerto Ricans. It wasn't, it wasn't even dread that, Oh no, we're going to get creamed in this competition. He was like, they're good. I like this. <laughs> right. So it was it more was excitement. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Did, did that answer your question? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm okay. sorry. I kind of worded it a little, the wording was a little murky because I, some ideas popped in my head while I was saying it, but yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. I mean, John Travolta is kind of known now for his dancing. And I mean, that was the first time he'd ever really done any dancing on film was for well, this movie. Currently, I would not say he's known well, for no. But that's yeah, true I mean, but but i mean like, like this he, and like he, pulp fiction stuff like that i mean those days yeah. are long since are long over but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he, yeah yeah he would have won that competition even if his partner was adina menzel absolutely yes <laughs> that's <laughs> that certainly would have helped him in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah so Sorry, yeah that I was just interesting yeah oh go bad ahead joke but i, I had to do it <laughs> <laughs> you mean adele dazim <laughs> yeah, her, her too, her too. Right, right, right. <laughs> Another thing too that I that struck me this last time I was watching that I never really noticed before is is um, kind of going back to the gang of friends a little bit. Gus <laughs> gets attacked at one point and um, winds up in the hospital. It it almost seems like when that happens, it's kind of like the, there's this, his support system of his friends isn't doesn't seem like it's there as much as it should be, which kind of led me to think, hmm, I wonder if these guys really are actually, you know, what their motivation to be friends with each other is a little bit. <laughs> like kind of like you said, with, with Bobby and, you know, like, yeah. oh, he's got the car and, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it could just be as simple as growing up in the same neighborhood. Yeah. You know, even, um, and again, ethnic divisions. Mm -hmm. probably played a, a factor too That's so they're the, they were on the same team whether they liked each other or not yeah maybe yeah that's true they're kind of all they know um, really yeah i mean gus you know kind of has to make that early exit and you know joey we don't really get a lot of uh character development on yeah. him either he, he kind of he seems to be a toned down a, a more sane version of double j and at the mm -hmm. same time he also kind of works to kind of keep Tony in check like when he tries to be jealous of Annette one last time Joey's the one who's like you never cared for her anyway why are you being like this right yeah you know, what, what's why right so I, I guess he's kind of supposed to be some sort of catch-all you know he, he is what they need him to be mm -hmm. in that moment given the given that 
who these other characters in, in the group of friends yeah. are. So that's where the greatest line comes into in the movie for me, for me personally, anyway. Mm-hmm. She didn't come yet. Since when does since when is that important to you? Since when do you care? Right. Like, oh, burn. <laughs> right. That was a good dig. Yep. <laughs> I've also heard in in people that I've talked to, there's a, the the fight scene that comes not long after that. Um, you know, the attack scene on Gus. Um, I've I've heard a couple of reviews of people who say that that scene sticks out to them in a bad way, more from like a te- technical standpoint of where it it kind of um the editing of that scene is is a little too like it stands out in a bad way from the movie like it's or in the movie it's almost too like stylized and 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 it you takes away the from violence the violence is fake yeah like, yeah exactly like it's know, a kind of a poorly produced fight where scene. where is it tony or double j kicks the one guy in the crotch yeah. you can tell his his foot's like a few inches away it's like you know how about you just make the guy wear a cup and have right. it be real I mean, right. that's a that's an easy way around that yeah but yes it, it looks very does look choreographed and stylized i also think bobby got kind of a bad rap for his role in that i mean yeah if a guy reaches into the car and is trying to attack you while you're in the driver's seat using the car is your best defense there drag mm-hmm. him along make him drop out so i felt like that he got a little too yeah. much grief from his friends for that in some ways i feel like i'm kind of going all over the place with this movie but but it kind of works i think for this movie because i mean it's not really there's not much of a linear plot to this film nope. it's, it's a bit it's pretty episodic it's very um it's more of a character study than than any kind of um you know exactly. this happened and then this happened and then this happened so it's well, um, that's why it's anthropological instead of historical yes 100 percent, 100 percent. definitely about the people there right yeah this movie i think is not really about dancing it is on a surface level but i don't think that's what drives the movie it's i mean it's a dance movie but not necessarily about it's not really about dancing it's about the thread it's the thread exactly and it's more of a a cultural study it's a character study it's a like you said a anthropological historical study and i think it really succeeds as as that because um and i think you know i really do think the movie holds up um, despite some things that they would never ever get away with today, and some mm. some some curious um, curious choices made on the part of the director and the writer, but um, I think that's part of what makes it hold up. Is it's it's you know it's really a fascinating um, glimpse into a, a, you know a type of society that doesn't really exist anymore. It does in a very different way. But yeah, that's, but I think it, I think it definitely holds up. And I think people will continue to be surprised by when they, by when they watch this. I want to talk a little bit more about some, some more of the music that appears in it. Cause I, um, yes, please. We talked about our favorite BG songs. What are some of your other favorite songs from this particular soundtrack? Obviously we know you should be dancing, which it wasn't really written for this movie originally. It was on the no, album prior it a, to it. It came out uh, off the top of my head. I want to say it came out around the same time as Jive Talking, which mm-hmm. you would think would, again, that sounds like it would be a good fit for that movie, but Jive Talking wasn't in the movie at all. Yeah. Um, and if I remember from the documentary, um, was it Jive Talking or You Should Be Dancing that they took like the first couple beats and created the entire rhythm line oh, right. for uh, Staying Alive. 
Yeah, it was a number one hit in 76. So, okay. So like a year before the movie. Yeah, although it was, um, it topped the charts uh, later in the year. Like it, okay. it first entered the charts on the 4th of July in 76, right on the, right on the bicentennial. Wow. As a matter of fact. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> although they're what, British and Australian, so it doesn't yeah. mean much to them. Right. <laughs> but but I'm sure there was a lot of dancing on the bicentennial. So that, that fits. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, that, and it's funny how that's yeah. kind of the, that wasn't written for this movie, but that's one of the more um, noteworthy songs in the soundtrack. Obviously you got staying alive, which is just legendary. It, that's an immortal pop disco song. It um, is. And it, it's kind of funny that most of the time when you hear it, it's not in the disco. You, you only hear a little bit of it after the competition Mm-hmm. but it's mostly in the intro yeah it's just in the outside, credits yeah or, or or outside of the club at the, at the beginning too yeah mm-hmm. right absolutely yeah um and it's also too thinking about because when we think when people think of staying alive and think of saturday night fever they immediately like i said they think of you know the bgs and john travolta and they think of him in that white leisure suit with his finger pointing up in the air um you know that is on the cover yeah. of every DVD and on the cover of the soundtrack that never appears in the movie. There's never a scene where he does that, which is, I just find it kind of, kind of ironic and interesting. Um, and it kind of goes to show that it just kind of the, the marketing of the movie being in a, a certain way that maybe might not be exactly what the movie is offering. Right. But, um, yeah. And of course, night fever is amazing more than a woman, um, both for his two versions of that. There, I, 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 have to, I have to admit to liking Tavares's version better, to be honest. It's more, it's got that soul thing yeah. going on to it. Yeah, I, I do like that version too. Um, Calypso Breakdown, I love because I love any kind of Latin music. So interestingly, Jive Talk, and you mentioned, is not in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's in the soundtrack album. Oh, okay. Which is very, un- I guess because <laughs> it fits stylistically. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, because it's be it. mm-hmm. yeah, it's towards the end of the soundtrack, right before you should be dancing. Um, also, Cool and the Gang is on the soundtrack. Open Sesame, uh, two classical music disco hybrids. Mm-hmm. You know, Fifth of Beethoven <laughs> and Night on Disco Mountain, which I love. And Disco Mountain. Yes, <laughs> David Shire. <laughs> I I love both of those. I think they're amazing. Um, Manhattan Skyline. Um, if I can't have you. Yvonne Elliman. I like her version more than the Bee Gees version of that. I love Yvonne. You know, and I think she's underrated. Yeah, I think it was kind of interesting that the way they used that song in the movie too. Mm-hmm. It's used three times. And the first two times are both involve the character Penny up on the bar doing her little strip routine. Right. Yep. And the third time is when uh, Stephanie is dancing with Pete. Yeah. So you, you hear that song playing and you see this sleaze ball dancing with a girl that you're pining after. <laughs> Where is your mind going to go? Right. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a conditioned response. Uh-huh. You, you associate that song with, with nudity about to happen and yeah. you see the sleaze ball guy. You know, you put up with him because he gives you free studio time, <laughs> which I think also explains how he spends so much time at the club too because he's you know they said he has the moses effect so he they obviously let him at a discount because he brings other people in i mm, think is yeah is how he can afford to spend so much time there right right 
being <laughs> sorry that was going back to something you said earlier oh that's but, okay yeah but yeah that <laughs> but it, i just kind of caught it noteworthy that that's the three times that song is used and maybe that kind of heightens or catalyzes um tony's jealousy a little bit yeah, that's an interesting observation. It's kind of, yeah, that song is used very strategically, I guess you could say, that the movie. I yep. actually didn't never picked up on that, but you're absolutely right. It's it's a little um, subliminal, but it, it it's, yes. yeah. I, I will say, though, as far as the soundtrack goes, um, You Should Be Dancing is in a tight race for a favorite song from that movie next mm -hmm. to Disco Inferno. That, oh, my gosh, yeah. I love yeah. that song. That song has yep. been stuck in my head ever since I suggested we do this movie yeah. and I, I don't care. I love yeah. that song. It's, it's one, it's definitely one of the most infectious and, and memorable of all the disc of any disco song from that era. Yes. It's that is, is such a classic. Yep. I'm, I'm totally with you there. Interesting little tidbit on more than a woman um, for when I was younger uh, and obviously, I didn't see this movie till I was a grown up. Thank God, because mm -hmm. this is not appropriate. Yeah, but um, no, not appropriate for kids <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, not in any way. But um, when I would hear more than a woman on the radio, so I I knew all the early Bee Gees music up through like, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't listen to much of the disco stuff when I was little, except for what I heard on the radio. Um, and I would hear more than a woman, and I, for a lot of my childhood, thought that they were saying bald headed woman. <laughs> bald-headed woman to me <laughs> no that and it's something I, i'm still having trouble long hair song <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's something i'm still having trouble unhearing unfortunately but um <laughs> i'm sorry to anybody who will be thinking that now when they hear it but <laughs> maybe i thought it was about grace jones oh could be that's true <laughs> i would love to have her get contribute something to the soundtrack there you go. She would oh, be amazing. Awesome. Right? That would have been great. Yeah. You know, I mean, her song, I'm Not Perfect, but I'm Perfect for You, could have been a Nets song to Tony, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Because, yeah, the infatuation was, was a lot. Mm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and There's of course... one other song we have to talk about, though, and especially the way it's used in the movie um, at the dance studio. I just thought mm. it was hilarious that Pete is teaching all these 40-year-old, 40 40-something-year-old 40 people the basics of disco dancing. <laughs> what has got to be the most hated, most reviled of mm -hmm. all the, the disco catalog in the world. <laughs> I, I just found it so funny that he's using this throwaway song to yep. teach dance this style of dancing to people who are never going to do it outside of this right movie. exactly gonna, it's like an insular yep they're not going to go to the clubs they're not they're just doing this i don't know to get out of the house or what i, I, I don't know <laughs> it's like the jazzercise <laughs> group the fact that, <laughs> exactly right. but just the, just the fact that he uses disco duck for that is uh, that it, it's kind me. of a, it was oh, perfect it, it, it and I guess you can't have a disco movie if you don't include that in some form, you know, a movie that defines some generation. Yeah, that's true. We can try, can't please? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I my that, biggest question is why didn't they include that on the soundtrack album? For obvious reasons, they wanted it to sell. <laughs> that's true, and that it certainly did that. And that wasn't <laughs> the only Rick B's song either. 
forget what the name of the other one was, but you hear it. Oh, Dr. Disco. Right, yes. Right. As they're going to the 2001 for the first time, I'm like, I hear that. I'm like, what was that? Uh-huh. It's like, what? <laughs> that would have actually been funny if, um, like on like the, like five, like a limited edition, 5,000 copies of the soundtrack album, they put like a, a just a single like a 45 single inside the album of Dr. Disco and Disco Doc on either side, but don't say it on the label. So that when people open up the package, you're surprised. Oh, what's this? <laughs> oh, bonus material. Right. No, it's not. Nope. <laughs> if they ever do like a 50th anniversary reissue, I'm going to suggest that they do something like that. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> and, you know, got to give some love to MFSB for their uh, KG mm. song too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, the, uh, that the Puerto Rican couple dance too mm -hmm. yeah that's an incredible song too so it much is. incredible music i just and of course like i said it's grown on me a little bit more because i mean obviously when something's overplayed there's going to be a lot of um you know ennui ennui exactly yeah it, it, you know and it, i'm i'm totally guilty of when i was young being like oh saturday night fever that's too mainstream i i like you know obscure VGs that people don't listen to, but you, lemons you know, never forget. Lemons never forget. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I obviously I, it's grown on me tremendously, and I sure. more than understand why why it was famous. You just kind of you know, you surrender that part of yourself. I think as you get older, <laughs> the two too cool for school. Of you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The, the the daily grind just causes mm -hmm. the reallocation of mental and physical resources so that uh that whole aspect of yourself just kind of goes to waste yeah for sure um so i want to i want to move again into something about something different i kind of want to talk a little bit about the cast of this movie because outside of john travolta a lot of unknown people like you know yeah. this was a lot of one and done actors in this movie um there was only one other actor i recognized um, well, there were a couple. Um, mm -hmm. I just couldn't place a, where I knew them from. Mm -hmm. um, there was the, the only other actor I kind of knew where I knew them from was uh, Tony's father, uh, Sal. And I'm going to butcher the name if I try it. But, um, but the only reason I recognized him was because he played uh, the mess sergeant in a few episodes of M.A.S.H., Oh, and he's okay. kind of used. He's kind of used as a as a comic foil, mm -hmm. you know, a, a tough Italian guy who, you know, he's been in the army a long time, and even though he's only a sergeant, he's not going to be bossed around by these uh, doctors who technically outrank him, but don't have right. the the years of experience, and especially not when it comes to food. Even <laughs> even though it's army food, he's still not going to he's master of the mess don't mess with him you know so i recognized him from that mm -hmm. but um other than that like i could have sworn i recognized um tony's boss in the movie i couldn't think of where though oh, yeah uh the one paint store customer who says he's gonna paint his wife's behind <laughs> like he looked familiar i couldn't think of where he was from they're, they're almost like little bit players in a lot of popular 70s yeah, movies and shows. Yeah. I would be that's remiss if I is. didn't if I didn't um, make mention of the Fran Drescher cameo in the club. I missed that. Yeah. Where was that? 
she plays the character of Connie. She's not in it much. She kind of is trying to, um, oh. she's trying to get in bed with oh, Tony. My. Yes, I, yeah. I didn't recognize her. I did not recognize her. Yeah, and her voice is but obviously yeah. a little dialed back from what it would be on The Nanny, but yeah. You know, and when my then girlfriend's father was talking about why he loved this movie so much, he mentioned that bit of dialogue about the flowers. Mm. He, he mm. said like that even today that dialogue tends to censored a lot. Um, yeah. I think he said there was supposed to be a comment about paying respects and the line about paying respects gets omitted and just says, well, maybe they think you're dead. I don't yeah. know. I, I, that was a conversation long ago. Maybe I heard him wrong, but that, that's basically the point of, of why he's saying that. But right. Yeah. That, you know, that brings up something. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I almost forgot to mention this is, is um, I've never seen it and I'm dying to see how, in the world, they made a PG version of this movie. <laughs> There's a PG cut that was released on VHS um, when it was really popular um, because they, obviously they wanted more people to see it. But, you know, it's this is definitely an, a 17 and plus movie. So they made a PG cut. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just like, how did they do that? It, it had to be like a 20 minute movie with just dancing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, I I'd be fascinated. The, the competition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they, they must have like dubbed over some of the language or, or you know, um, or just cut a lot of it out. Yeah, I'm going to. Yeah, I, I want to see if yeah. I can get like a, the VHS of that at some point and see if I can check it out. Because then keeping all the all the comments of, you know, the whole most of not all, but most of the Tony Stephanie dynamic, especially where she's trying to make mm -hmm. herself look good by name drop and. Yeah. all stuff and basically establishing why she's better than him mm -hmm. yeah that's true yeah a lot of that stuff a lot of that stuff then sure right some of the street stuff um, not so much and, yeah and even some of the family stuff not so much yeah that's true yeah it was a pretty they were pretty raw like, like, family i mean even john travolta in his underwear they'd probably have to censor <laughs> right? that a little bit. do like you know remember in um do like the grandmother does look away right right <laughs> i'm just thinking of like and in showgirls <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a great that's a classic moment um i just remember like when they used to show showgirls on like commercial cable tv and they would put like um computer animated like um bras on these topless women and like computer generated panties on it it looked so ridiculous i'm just thinking of them putting like you know like airbrushing a pair of pants on it or something <laughs> it's true they used to hey why would hey why would you want to show that movie on cable right oh, that movie they used to so show it on terrible. vh1 was, like all the time and so badly really yep mm -hmm. it was regarded as just being such a terrible movie why would you even want to show it <laughs> i you know what i, I, I actually I, I, guess, I guess if you're doing a movie so bad we dare you to sit through them kind of marathon special event where you could show ishtar and Showgirls uh -huh. and cats. <laughs> <laughs> I want to actually rewatch. Well, maybe watch it in full showgirls because I, I apparently it's getting like um. There's been like a, a reevaluation, like a critical reevaluation of it, 
and it's kind of become a little bit of a cult classic. And so I'd like to maybe actually check it out, like legitimately to see if it actually deserves that. <laughs> no, have you, have you watched it or, or no? I, I have seen it and oh, okay. No. No. no, yeah. I, I would say if anything should be reevaluated that involves naked women to be strip tease with them oh, yeah. more because, because you've got that whole politician flexing muscle just to get the you know using his power to m use women or get women like that's mm -hmm. like the whole sex scandal that's what makes that movie worth at least taking another look at to some degree yeah and even i mean we're getting way off topic but even the, the okay. shaming of sex workers mm, yeah I, that's I think, true you know, that, that's that a very good point evaluated to a degree but yeah no <laughs> skip showgirls there's okay there's nothing there well certainly in terms of clothing there's nothing there um <laughs> at least uh, yeah um but anyway i just thought that was a little interesting that there's a pg version of this floating around somewhere um that i would like to get my hands on and see um <laughs> ebay yeah <laughs> absolutely eBay. as long as it's not like you know a hundred dollars or something like that it'd be interesting yeah that's true yeah. Um, trivia question. Do you know which um, renowned critic considers Saturday Night Fever his favorite movie? Hmm. You know, I, the only, I don't know too many critics it, by it, name anyway. Yeah. I'm guessing it's not Siskel or Ebert. I can't think of the Gene Shalit is his name. Would that, would that be who it is? It's, it is it's Siskel. It's Gene Siskel. Oh, it's Siskel. Okay. Yeah. He paid like a half a million dollars for Travolta's polyester suit that he wore in this movie. Okay. And considers it like interesting. a landmark movie for at least for him personally, which I thought was nice. kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I praise it that high, but I mean, I think it's a really yeah. good, interesting movie um, that I think people should see, but um, that might be a little over the top. Um but I, I mean, I'm what, the, the, the money it. or the suit, <laughs> all of the above <laughs> and the praise, the money, the suit <laughs> good, and the praise are all <laughs> good answer. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> yeah. And no surprise. This was in, um, put in the national film registry um, in 2010, which is actually later than I thought it would be. <clears throat> hmm. And, um, and the soundtrack also was in the library of Congress as well. Also, well, that one makes a little bit more sense. That was, like like I said earlier, this is just a movie where they, I didn't even know what the plot of this movie was. I assume mm -hmm. there was a, you know, a, some a lot of dancing in it, mm -hmm. and maybe even a competition. But I had no idea what the rest of the movie was about. Yeah, and I think that's but a common thing because, it. yeah, because like you said, the whole like cultural um, response to it really eclipsed what the movie actually kind of was about. Maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing in my opinion because I, I, I there's um you know it's I, I think the movie it's 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 it's, a, it's an intense movie in some spots but um did, yes. did you did you enjoy it the first time you saw it and and subsequent times or 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 not because this is a movie i could see people liking and hating okay um boy i i don't know i think this is a movie i just kind of i think the first time i watched it i just just went huh <laughs> i i didn't 
didn't love it, didn't hate it. It's it was just like indifference. Okay, that was that was something. <laughs> well, like I said too, because it was going back to what I said, it's so culturally different for me that it, it's mm-hmm. hard to know how to respond to it. Yeah, that's true. I, I saw it in, in the theater when it came out for the 40th anniversary in uh, 2017, obviously. Yeah. And that was the first time um, where I think I had actually, like I'd, I'd seen it before, but never like consciously sat down to watch it from start to finish. And that was the first time I'd actually done that. It with, yeah, mm-hmm. and there's probably a difference too when you see it with people. Right. With like my mother who, was, who I went to see it with, which is a little awkward some parts of the movie were awkward to watch with your mom <laughs> did your mother want you to be a priest too <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was great like it was really cool seeing the th- the songs really just bumped in the theater that uh you should be dancing was was truly like ex- an ex- exuberant watching it in a movie theater like when you just get the surround sound and it's right in your face, face it's oh it, amazing amazing yes um, I can only imagine that. That's, yeah, that sounds awesome, though. Yeah, yeah. The rest that of the movie will be worth the price of a mission. Oh, 100 percent, one hundred percent. And um, yeah, the movie itself. I mean, it it has grown on me for sure. Um, similarly to you, I think I had a, a little bit of indifference at first, just because I didn't really know what to make of it. But um, yeah, I definitely appreciate it now for what it represents and and for its um historical value if nothing else, mm-hmm. you know, as, as, you know, as, as I don't want to say it's flawed, but as, as, as difficult as some parts of it might be sure to watch. Yeah. But, um, but it, it's really, it's a fun movie to talk about. It's a fascinating movie to talk about. And um, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm hopefully next week, I'm going to be covering the sequel directed by Sylvester Stallone called staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm hoping to release both of those episodes kind of like a week apart from each other, um, which would be I, fun. I, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Have you seen that? I have not. No. Um, no, I think this is the first, other than the documentary, I think this is the first movie I've seen that the Bee Gees are heavily associated with. Mm. I haven't seen uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band oh, either. Oh, man. So. That's, that's, a, that's a movie. I've seen that. A number of times I, i'm surprised we haven't covered it on here yet but um someday i kind of think the paint store is kind of worth mm. mentioning to what happened you know yep good call um you know he, he's good at his job obviously but what makes uh, two things kind of the, the dynamic between uh, tony and his boss i think is important to take note of um I kind of like what his boss said about, you know, why you get paid on Monday instead of on Friday, like everybody yeah. else in the, in the world. So yeah. that was. Cause he wanted to go boozing and dancing. <laughs> it, it's kind of a fallacious logic. And yet it, it, it's also sound. Cause I mean, you can go yeah. drinking and dancing any night usually, but when are people going to do it? The weekend it's, right. it's part of the whole, it's kind of, countering the whole social construct of you know the work week as we have internalized it so i i I like that but obviously the the more well let me go back to to him first bringing the can of paint inside the (laughs) story has to go around the 
I I had to laugh at that because I relate to that so much. I had to <laughs> when when I worked in food service, I've had to go to the party store to buy chips so that we could serve them on the side. Um, and when I worked in a fast food place that did you know uh, a latte drinks, mm. um, our boss just did not never ordered enough milk there's like a a period of time where they were getting ready to sell their share of the franchise they're getting out of it and they were going to sell it so they kept shorting us on our supplies constantly Mm. we were always running out of stuff Mm. and frequently i had to run you know across the intersection kitty corner across the intersection to the gas station convenience store to buy warm milk just so we could keep serving wow. lattes and cappuccinos there and wow. our mochas. So it was so <laughs> Tony with a can of paint. It's like, I've been there. I know exactly <laughs> what's going on. The other key moment um, is when after he thinks he's been fired, he's coming to collect his last paycheck severance and all that. And he's like, ah, forget about it. It was a blowover. And he goes, hey, you see, you know, he's been with me since I opened. And him, he's been here 15 years. You do good. You got a bright future. And that's that's just such a pivotal moment, too, I think, yeah, that's for true. Tony's character. He's, he's looking down the barrel of his future. And it looks like the barrel of a shotgun, not the barrel of a water slide he wants to go down. Yeah. So it's. It was, it was just a very coming to grips with reality moment. And that's, I mean, I think that if, if that's a moment you haven't gone through in, in your personal life, then bless you. I mean, you've had a very wow. good life. I mean, to, yeah. as I said, I, you know, with, with my career life, it's you, at some point when you come to grips, like, am I willing to have this be, my life for the next several years yeah and you have to you really have to ask yourself some hard questions Mm -hmm. so that was that was a short moment but boy was that powerful yeah yeah that's that's a good point i I, you know it's funny because that is kind of a interesting feels almost like a throwaway line when you hear it but it's it carries a lot of weight i think for for you know have, if, you know, for people who have been through it and also for his character too, because I mean, he didn't really have a lot of, Tony didn't have a lot of champions or a lot of people in his corner. And, you know, um, and I, I think he also realized too, you know, as John Lennon would say later in his song, Beautiful Boy, life is what happens when you're busy mm-hmm. making other plans. You know, right. he was realized, coming to the grips with, you know, this is what my life is going to be like if I don't actually take notice of what's, what's happening around me. Right. You know, what I'm doing. I felt that was worth mentioning. Yeah, no, thank you. That's that's a good point. I'm glad you brought up the paint store because it is actually a pretty um, crucial part of his character and 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 of of um, and of the story as well. Um, and I would have probably just <laughs> brushed by it, no pun intended. But um, you may have mentioned this earlier. Some of the, some of his behavior and some of his choices may have been, you know, because he was primed and conditioned to being the bad guy, quote unquote, that he, that's what he was comfortable with. You know, like, you know, I see this a, a lot of times as, as a, 
you know, working with kids, being a teacher is, is sometimes people get, you know, labels about what people expect them. Like, Oh, you got the bad kid. You got the, the nice kid. You, this person that, you know, your personalities are almost, I think when you're young, when you're little, they're, they're almost kind of given to you to a degree. And he yeah. maybe, maybe, um, you know, especially in that kind of family life that he had, that environment, he's a product, very much a product of that environment. And, um, yeah, you know, they definitely treated him, especially with the whole Frank situation, um, very much a, a black sheep. And I'm sure he grew up kind of that became intrinsic in him to feel that way. And so he just, his behavior was just automatically reflected that, you know, and, and that's what, that was his normal. That's what was, what was comfortable for him. Yeah. Yeah. He, Tony was definitely a, you get the feeling that as children, Tony was definitely more strong-willed than mm -hmm. Frank was. Frank, I mean, he kind of lays it out there mm -hmm. that his whole life has never been more than what his parents wanted him. But he never, he feels like he never got to develop his own person, never got to ask himself what he wanted right. out of life and never, never really got to discover who he is as a person. Absolutely, yeah. When, when Tony almost too much so you know, he, he almost, yeah. Yeah. yeah, almost to a point where he just he really couldn't handle it. He couldn't, um, couldn't process all the external factors that were leading him to be so misguided, I guess you could say. Um, mm -hmm. If, if that, you know, if, if he was, I, that's how I, I see him as a little misguided, but, and I don't know if he sees himself that way. I think towards the end he did, um, but that might not be something, something he's comfortable with yet. So, right. Yeah. We might find out more about that in Staying Alive, the sequel. I think that that kind of leads me to the end of my notes for this movie. Um, anything else that you wanted to add to it? I mean, you know, we, we danced around the whole parents thing. And I think mm. that as far as we really can get with that. I mean, yeah. I, again, because that wasn't my parents, I don't know yeah. how true to form that is. I do know a little bit about the Italian grandmother saying mangia mangia I, I actually have <laughs> yeah. experienced that uh, but boy was the gnocchi so good telling oh, you that mangia was no problem yeah oh, oh I bet mm. yeah I love that yeah I wish you know I wish they were a little bit more because the movie kind of feels like they dance around a little bit too if I wish they were a little bit more fleshed mm -hmm. out they're not in it for that long they're in it for a really right. short intense period of time where we kind of think that they're getting, that even, left, even yeah. less, you know, like yeah. his little sister was like one of the few bright spots that he felt like he could be himself with right. his little sister, at least. So it's kind of sad. We didn't see more of her, but I would rather have taken some of the moments with his friend group and spent it a little yeah. bit more with the family. I guess it makes sense Maybe. as a character. Cause he wouldn't, he wouldn't be spending as much time with his family that made him right. feel like an outcast. But um, just as an audience member, I found them, a little bit more intriguing and, and a little bit more insightful as to who he is as a character as well. I thought they were, they were not only were they interesting characters, I thought they were very funny as well. I think kind of um, just, yeah. I mean, they were so, you know, didn't shy away from violence at the table um, and just saying, <laughs> speaking their mind, even the mom, like that's a pretty, that's a, a pretty big um, victory for women's lib in the seventies as a mom that had no qualms about smacking her family around and, <laughs> speaking or, or even getting a job which they even mentioned. yeah like his father was against her getting a job he kind of especially saw it as an insult and threat to him mm -hmm. even though he's on unemployment yeah 
yeah, definitely. That's true. Yeah, that, that, that is a big deal. So those characters, so they should have, instead of staying alive, they should have made a sequel kind of based on the Monero, like the Monero, the Monero Family Chronicles or like maybe. a series. That would have been kind of cool. <laughs> maybe. Or maybe he teaches his little sister to dance. Who knows? Yeah, that would have been cool. That or, prote- been- or protects him, protects her from guys who are like his friends. Yeah, or pr- apparently protects him from guys that like, or protects her from guys that are like him. That too. Unfortunately. Yeah. So any, any other, any other thoughts before we do our, our promotion or anything like that? I, you know, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. I think so. That, that brings me to the end of, of everything that I had um, written down about the movie. I was, you know, like I said, I, I really, so I told you this in, in DM and I, I didn't mention this yet to the listeners and I want to, I want to do that now. Um, as much as I like this movie, I, 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 I like the Bee Gees more than the movie. Um, sure. it, the, the, their music means more to me than the movie does. But I, I, I do love the movie in the sense of that it kind of is their red letter um, piece of art. You know, that's what people know them for. And, um, and so I'm thankful that it exists for that reason. And I'm, you know, I'm thankful that this movie has given us so much of their great music and has kind of solidified their legacy as legends. Cause I wonder what, I often wonder what their legacy would look like had this movie never existed. Um, hmm. You know, if they only had the first leg of their career because they were floundering by the time, you know, well, they Dive were Talking already came doing out. disco music by the time this movie came about. Like I, mm-hmm. like I pointed out earlier, both Jive Talking and You Should Be Dancing were top 10 hits, right. you know, 75, 76. So this was before, so they were doing disco before the music. I think this just gave them a way to put all the eggs in one basket. Yeah. Maybe a better way of wording it was, um, or, or maybe a better way of thinking about it is um, maybe what would, what would disco as an art form look like had this movie never happened? How would, you know, what would... Because this movie is both simultaneously responsible for its public acceptance of it, and it's also lar- in large part responsible for the public um, vile or bile or venom towards it. You know what I mean? Um, right. In because it was so oversaturated, and obviously when something's that oversaturated, people are gonna, you know, there's gonna be backlash. But this was so extreme, and this was so intense, like really unprecedented in 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 the way that it was, it ended up being um, reviled that I wonder. That's a good question. Yeah. It just makes me like, would people like, for instance, like something like, um, like the Donna Summer records, you know, those are really frequently cited as being hugely influential, but it took years to get there because of the way people viewed, um, viewed disco for a long time. Um, sure. Would, would, it, would that have been seen as influential sooner would it would um, the disco scene would be kind of viewed more in like the way that Motown is viewed now? Um, I don't know, How just do kind of that? things I'm thinking uh, of in the way well, of like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, just like in the way of like, um, would more people consider those songs to be more classic than they do now? Oh, okay. You know what okay. I mean? Would they be more? Um, because nobody questions like, oh, everybody knows that Motown is a legendary, important, influential. Um, you know, um, hit making establishment institution, institution exactly. Um, and I, I wonder if disco would be kind of seen in the same way 
you know, had this movie not come to kind of overshadow everything that people thought about disco as a, as a genre? That's a good question too, because it's not just about the dancing music itself. It's also about what, first of all, the, the subculture, I mean, disco culture by itself, pretty much by definition is urban and therefore it's mm-hmm. heavily concentrated so it, it's not gonna have the same you know punch across the nation without this movie to kind of give people in smaller towns you know a glimpse into that life but also i think from a civil rights perspective because this movie brought so much to a head and not just to uh, people of color because because as we as you alluded to in the documentary the BG's documentary where they had that disco backlash day at the ballpark and one person who worked for the ballpark kind of comments like these songs aren't even these aren't even disco records. These are just mm. records by black artists. Like people are bringing in Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On" mm. to demolish the disco record by right. any stretch. Right, right. It was it was just a, a backlash against African American culture, and um, but also to the LGBTQ yeah. plus community. Disco was. I mean, I mean. I, I don't even feel like I should say anything about it. I'm certainly not the best uh, person to give any information about that. It's just, we, we know that was right. a huge part of that community too. Right. Like, I mean, like you and, have the village people and Sylvester people like that, yep. you know, very, very prominent Giorgio queer artists, Moroder. Giorgio Moroder, who are, who are making very almost, I don't want to say aggressively, but very blatantly queer music you know, by queer artists. Um, and it's just, it's interesting, like would that, that shift, like did the, the soundtrack in this movie um, make it more, give people more of like an, an impetus to, to behave like that? Would it still have happened if it never, it's just, it's an interesting, you know, thought because I mean, it was I, I, so enormous. It was unavoidable. I wonder how the eighties would have shaped up differently yeah. too, because mm-hmm. certainly you know, you think of, you know, how would the Reagan administration, would there have been a Reagan administration? Mm. What would that have looked like? I mean, the two are disconnected to a large degree because there's other political factors and certainly yeah. Reagan's charisma had a lot to do with it too. Yeah. But when you look at the historical, you know, looking back at what a Reagan administration meant to the, to the African-American and to the you know, LGBTQ community, all, all the, all the minority communities. Um, you almost wonder, was that administration a form of backlash too? I, I don't know. Yeah. I just, but when you pose the questions like that, because the way it seems, especially the way you describe it, it kind of brings all these things to a head and causes the world to deal with these things yeah 
that's in that's a very, a, very, very good for, question. Yeah, it's just it's something I, I just kind of thought about when with the movie, especially because I mean, people have accused the Beezies of appropriating, which I think is is fair to a degree. Um, I don't think it's you know it's not I don't think it should be a deal breaker by any stretch. You know, they I don't think they were, you know, it was not nefarious in any way. But I think um, it's the, I think it's the same way that the British invasion appropriated the blues. They mm, they mm-hmm. loved the blues. They were yeah. doing a their best to honor it right it, but because of the response to it from white audiences it became appropriation right that's true and i think it was very much the same for 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 disco you know i mean like of course now that you have these you know these um lily white dudes you know singing music that was very you know very much seen as an empowerment tool for these marginalized people you know that probably upset people to a certain degree, not not to the extent of where they're going to be, you know, steamrolling records and stuff like that. But I think they're, um, um, I think it not only just, you know, it upset the subgroup that it was um, honoring, which in turn led to these huge demonstrations. Um, so I'm, you know, I don't know what my point is necessarily there, but I, um, I'm just curious how how big of an impact it it really ultimately had in mm. in, in in people's you know people's views of. I I think the the social long term social impact is definitely much more um, a question to ponder and philosophize over. But as I said, as far as the music of the Bee Gees goes, mm-hmm. they were already on this path. Yeah, to a degree with with songs like. Like I said, jive talking and you should be dancing. Sure. So I think, I think these songs still would have happened because mm-hmm. they're not the lyrics of the songs aren't related to a, the plot of the movie at all. So right. these songs would have absolutely happened. Yeah, I think only staying alive. I think he wrote after reading the short story that it was based on, but all the rest of the songs okay. are pretty disconnected. Um, and I, I have a feeling they would still they would still exist, but they may not have been quite as gigantic as they ended up being maybe Possibly. um because yeah, i think that possible. movie was the conduit for them to really to really thrive mm-hmm. but um i mean i could certainly be wrong you know it, nobody will ever know but i'm you know kind of theorizing and but i also think too maybe they're um because they really dropped off fell out of favor hard and fast once the 80s hit um yeah i do also have a feeling had it not existed they might they're that they might have had more long-term success into the 80s because it may not have been as an again i'm theorizing but it's just it's fun to kind of yeah ponder over <laughs> it is yeah. yeah but i don't know but then they wouldn't have probably be getting the same royalty checks that they've been getting thanks to so many like dolly parton and diana ross yeah. and <laughs> samantha saying <laughs> at all but yeah it's it's an interesting it's one of the more interesting um social periods i think of our history for me personally it's one that i think is really fascinating and and fun to talk about but yeah um yeah this was a really really fantastic and and um really engaging and thought-provoking conversation thank you thank you so much for um for all the insight and taking the time to talk about this and having the idea to do this movie well i'll only take credit for uh suggesting the movie i don't know if 
my thoughts could be quite called insights. I think that's a bit loftier than they deserve. Oh, well, no, I, I, thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. No, I, I think it's appropriate. Like you definitely, um, like you said, I think viewing it through the lens of, of, um, like sociology, I think really gives it a really new twist you know, from how I watch it. Cause I, I never really watch it from that sense. I'm, I'm always more of like a character person, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it was insightful seeing it from that perspective. Cause um, um, it really, yeah, shined a new light on it. So, so thank you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, again, as always Phil, thank you so much for, for being here and for giving me your time and, and your thoughts. And, um, and I'd like to know where people can find you out in the internet world, out in internet land. <laughs> well, I am on uh, Twitter still at Stuckatash54. Um, my blog, uh, my main blog that I write on, Rock Hall Monitors, at our dot blogger or blog spot. Um, I hope to be, I'm in the middle of writing um, a new entry now mm. about the class of 2020 uh and the the songs that would honor that particular class all the inductees Mm -hmm. including the uh other categories so Mm. that hopefully will be coming soon it we'll see which drops first that entry or this episode probably the episode i'm a slow writer (laughs) that's okay i was actually going to ask you if you had any upcoming entries um especially related there's a lot of activity going on right now that that one's coming up uh, pretty soon. Um, other than that, just want to say uh, thanks for having me again. Oh, of course, absolutely. Anytime at the the door, as it were, <laughs> is always open for people who might want to follow me. Any any new listeners? Um, I am at Josh F six one eight on Twitter. At Rock Movies Pod is the Twitter handle for the podcast. Um, you can send me an email at movies at rockpod at gmail.com and please leave a review. It helps people find the show. It really gets those algorithms going. And um, I always love to hear from you and um, like to hear what you think. It, and it can be positive or negative. It's all good. <laughs> Anything that I can improve, let me know. I'm happy to get any feedback. So um, thanks for listening. And Philip, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You're welcome.